Hello, friends. Welcome to the Nexus Podcast. I'm your host, James Dice. Each week, I fire questions at the leaders of the smart buildings industry to try to figure out where we're headed and how we can get there faster without all the marketing fluff. I'm pushing my learning to the limit, and I'm so glad to have you here following along. This is a conversation with Christopher Naismith, CEO and founder of Audet. We talked about how unscalable the traditional way to remove carbon from buildings is and what Audet is doing to make it scalable. We talked about how the business case for energy reductions is changing and what the leading indicators are telling us about the new way to think about the, the value of decarbonization. So without further ado, please enjoy the Nexus podcast with Christopher Naismith. Hello, Christopher. Welcome to the Nexus podcast. Can you introduce yourself, please? Yeah, thanks for having me. My name is Christopher Naismith. I'm the CEO and founder of Audet, and our mission is to get carbon out of buildings. All right. Very, very noble mission. Uh, so how'd you get into the buildings industry? What's your, what's your background? Yeah, I grew up in the, the forests of the Pacific Northwest, and I was always interested in maths and sciences. I ended up going to engineering school in a couple different spots in Canada, but I, uh, and I studied civil engineering, but I ended up back in the forests, uh, Vancouver Island, where I grew up. And my first job was as a surveyor. And I was in a forest, like tying ribbons around trees. Um, and I came back a week later and that forest had been clear cut to make way for the center line of a, a road that I had marked out. I was, you know, maybe not an epiphany moment, but in that job that I realized that the decisions that we make as sort of the architects of the built environment have long lasting and broad impact and that we do have a responsibility to, you know, be really conscious about the decisions that we make. So I, I dropped out of that. I spent a long time kind of looking for a better path. I went to Uganda and built water pipelines. I built houses out of recycled material in uh, the Nevada desert. But I eventually ended up back in academia in building science and really the study of how the design of commercial buildings impacts cost and carbon efficiency over time. And I really found a, a passion there and ended up back in this world as a consultant and uh, about 15 years ago. Cool. So I'd love to really just take a quick detour. What do you mean by plastic houses in Nevada? <laughs> <laughs> sure. There's a kind of a house called an earthship uh, okay. and it's really an off-grid house built from tires, cans, bottles, uses a thermal mass and recycles water three times. So I spent uh, a couple summers building those by hand in, in Taos, New Mexico. So it wasn't, yeah, sorry, not Nevada, New Mexico. Cool. Well, that's not too far from me. Are you talking about there's like a town to the north of town, like a little, not a town, it's like a neighborhood in the I would in call the it a commune. Yeah, that's the one. Okay, okay cool. Yeah, I've driven by that and just, you know, my jaw dropped out the window. Like, look at those cool things on the side of the hills. Very yeah. cool. All right, so consulting. I'm assuming you mean like energy engineering type of consulting. Can you explain what that process is as a way to kind of set up the rest of this conversation? How does that process work? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, a, a client has a large portfolio of buildings. They might be a university, a city, you know, a REIT, um, whomever. And they've decided that they want to reduce carbon for some reason. Uh, a lot of the times that's uh, cost-driven, but increasingly more and more it's a sustainability driven 
And so they need to know what to do. So they'll hire an energy engineer or a consultant to come crawl around their buildings, go through boiler rooms, go through records, take photographs and, and build a model of the buildings and then run scenarios, figure out the business cases and present them back to say, here's the specific capital projects you should take on. Here's the impacts. And then it gets passed into construction. So that, that was predominantly my job. Also helping to oversee, you know, take a look at the construction process and make sure it's happening properly and do post-project measurement and verification as well. Yeah. And I've, I've, everyone knows that I've done a lot of that work as well. Uh, I, I think we can probably say that's not the most scalable process. Is, is that an accurate assessment? That is very accurate. So I went through actually LinkedIn and added up everyone who was called themselves a sustainability or energy professional, um, did the math on it. If we were all sort of stacked in a pile, it would take us 200 years to touch every building that we needed to touch to get to net zero. And we certainly don't have that long. All right. So before we get to Audet, I'd love to like really kind of dig into what, what where most organizations are at today. So I've kind of done a lot of work and writing recently around taking the energy management process, which I've been doing my whole career and kind of revamping it, I guess you will, for the sustainability kind of mindset, right? The bigger picture for ESG, the bigger picture for decarbonization. And it, it's basically just like get the data, do some benchmarking, do some reporting, you know, develop out projects measure and verify those projects, kind of like you just said, and, and what you need to do in an individual building. Where are most organizations at today in that process that you guys work with? Yes. So most organizations generally are still in that very early vision setting stage. You know, we like sometimes say that they've tweeted carbon neutral, but they haven't actually got any, any plans to, to deal with it. We're fortunate enough to be in a place where there are, there are enough groups who have actually committed that, that need plans that our client base tend to already have a net zero ambition, ESG reporting in place and are really just looking to start churning through the spend. But that is you know, really just a small percentage of the market at this point. Totally. But in order to get to all those targets, right, before we hit record, you said something like 82% of the economy has some sort of zero carbon target or something like that. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So 82% of the global economy by GDP has a mid-century get carbon out of the economy target. So it is absolutely crucial that we start significant movement on on identifying and actioning those projects. A, a huge portion of that is related to buildings. The construction and operation of buildings represents about 40% of our global carbon emissions. So there is no carbon-free future in which we don't have carbon-free real estate. Absolutely. So, I mean, you walk through it, right? Go dig around the boiler room, find some drawings, but like, what are all the ways in which this the process, so we talked about target setting, benchmarking, the next step is actually doing something, creating a plan. What are all the ways in which that piece is not scalable besides the fact that we just don't have enough people? Can we talk a little bit more in detail about that? Yeah, absolutely. I think where we've really failed as an industry is to think about this as a, as a linear process of like start from scratch, build 
you know, benchmarking models and then go out and collect data and populate a model and then run scenarios on it and then bring it back a hundred days later and, and then try to get it into next year's capital cycle. It's just far too slow. And it is not really taking advantage of the fact that the building ecosystem is actually has quite a lot of rich data if we know how to structure it properly. I mean, I can talk a little bit about the solutions, but the, the, the problem is really more of a mode of thinking about how we pull forward conservation projects. We're kind of stuck in the same place that the travel industry was when we had to rely on travel agents to, to book our flights, right? There's just, there's a better tech enabled solution for, for actioning this work. Cool. All right. So, so what is the solution? What, what are you guys developing at Audet? Yeah, so kind of two a two pronged approach. So we sat down with the head of analytics for Google Cloud and and kind of blew our minds early days. You know, he sort of said there are two ways you can approach this. You can either take an existing process that's broken and you can try to improve it uh, incrementally, and you will. You know, and we have been um, actually improving the way that we identify projects, or you could forget about the 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 process for a second and you could start where you want to go. So where we want to go is having a carbon reduction plan for every existing building on the planet. And we can do that immediately. It'll be wrong, but we can, we can use satellite imagery. We can use public records. We can use what we know about buildings to really map out and, and archetype all of the, the buildings across massive geographies. And then when, a, when you show up to a building, you have a pre-built model of what you think is going on that just needs to be corrected by the by the auditor or by the data system and the more that we learn about about buildings the more that we can characterize the smarter these machine learning models get the better and smarter those models get so we're building that out we're basically mapping every commercial building on the planet using all sorts of ml techniques to pull forward what we think the hvac archetypes are what we think the gas and electricity uh, steam profiles are based on contextual data, while at the same time running a, a concierge-driven SaaS service that looks like building a data lake that connects to asset records, maintenance records, smart building systems, and helps to build out realistic bottom-up plans for corporate real estate. So okay. by running both those things concurrently, we're able to learn about what's important to do at a a massive scale while also delivering immediate value to the people who have to do construction projects tomorrow. What does a plan look like? So the plans I'm used to creating, right? Go out and like you said, crawl through boiler rooms and audit every building. And then every building would have like a list of energy conservation measures and those energy conservation measures, depending on what stage and what type of audit you did, might have a scope of work and bids from a contractor and projected out savings and all, all of that. So where do these sort of plans come in? How, how does this work? Yeah, so if you're familiar, obviously familiar with those stages of audit, we saw somewhere between an ASHRAE level one and an ASHRAE level two. Okay. So the, the, the projects are specific to pieces of equipment. They have costs. They have savings, they have incentives, and they're placed in time as, as to where they, you know, where the equipment is in its life cycle. So all of that together creates a sort of a visual roadmap of how you're going to step down your, your carbon emissions. Okay. And then the way that we handle the, the actual like quoting and, and 
from co contractors is where we have a marketplace where you, it'll point you towards, hey, this is the technology you should use. Here are the heat pump vendors that will help you implement that. And then you can just go straight to them. Okay. And so, I mean, all of the existing HVAC systems, existing buildings out there have some best path to net zero or zero carbon, right? Yeah. So you guys are basically just like crowdsourcing that into some sort of like recommendation engine for an individual building based on the, the information that you might have. So it might be this building's a 20,000 square foot grocery store and it's got six rooftop units. And based on that information, we know that the steps to decarbonize are this. Is that kind of how it works? Yeah, at its, at, at its basis level, that's the model, a sort of a digital model of the building. But then we get the the end user to to fill in any gaps using their existing maintenance records, their existing asset condition okay. reports. We'll drop ship a data collector that plugs into their smart building system. So it actually, we're able to parse out a lot of relevant context that helps those recommendations be very specific. Okay. And what sort of data would you collect that would sort of just metering or what would you collect that would sort of feed into this process? Yeah, so we start by collecting some high-level site information, you know, how big is it, where is it located, what's it being used for, what are your operating schedules. Then we'll, we'll then connect to the utility data. So we have a direct API connection to 9,000 utilities worldwide where we can pull out the billing data drop ship a data collector that runs on a Raspberry Pi and it'll plug into any smart building, any BACnet or Modbeth smart building system. Yeah, um, I just mean for that piece, what what data would you collect from the systems on site? Sure, so we, we could like, what we're really looking for is like an HVAC topology. So what are the major heating Got systems, it. cooling systems, air handlers? We tag it with a, some a combination of like uh, haystack and brick schema tags. And then we pull in the operating schedule and the enable points so we can see how, how that piece of equipment actually operates and how that affects energy use. Okay. And these are all then getting feed, fed into this plan that is getting more and more detailed and accurate based on the more and more data you have. What's the next step after the plan is put together? Yeah, so we deploy that plan on a, an ongoing, as a SaaS uh, product. Okay. What we what we found through many years is that audits themselves get stale after some time, right? They'll get yeah. maybe done every three years, maybe every five. But in fact, um, for capital planning purposes, the CFO doesn't really trust them after a year, maybe a year and a half. And so what we've done is blend out the cost of that auditing into an annualized subscription. So those data points get kept up to date and those business cases are always fresh when it's time to do planning for them. So that's sort of layer one. And then the next logical question is, you know, what technology should I use, which, you know, who, how should I develop this project? And, and that's where the marketplace comes into play. So they can actually see uh, a direct line from those recommendations to the technology providers. We're, we're a layer in the market and we're not aiming to do the construction piece. So we'll then just pass that work off to the, the professionals who take that on. Okay. And then does that get tracked in the software after they get to work? Yeah, so the the equipment get records get updated. The obviously the smart 
building networks, if there is one, get adapted, we get to see the new data. And so then we can actually do post-project measurement on the impact of those projects. Hey guys, just another quick note from our sponsor, Nexus Labs, and then we'll get back to the show. This episode is brought to you by Nexus Foundations, our introductory course on the smart buildings industry. If you're new to the industry, this course is for you. If you're an industry vet, but want to understand how technology is changing things, this course is also for you. The alumni are raving about the content, which they say pulls it all together. And they also loved getting to meet the other students on the weekly Zoom calls and in the private chat room. You can find out more about the course at courses.nexuslabs.online. All right, back to the interview. Okay. So a piece of this that I'm not familiar with, you know, when, when I did this process as a consultant, you know, in the non-scalable way, um, it was always like, let's try to hit a two-year payback, right? Or let's yeah. try to hit a five-year payback. I had one client one time that wanted a positive net present value over 10 years, and they included the social cost of carbon in that equation. And that was the, by far the most progressive client I ever had. And they did a ton of work and that was amazing. But in order to get to zero carbon, right, we're not necessarily going to have a two-year, five-year, even 10-year payback in order to get there. Like if I just think about, you know, the average building is going to have to do some stuff that they probably wouldn't do otherwise, right, to get there. And so what are your, what are your thoughts on this? How do we get to where the stuff that doesn't have a payback starts to happen? And I'm thinking about like, like the roadmap that you talked about, you're doing the low hanging fruit first, and then maybe the next highest payback next. And then eventually you're going to get to where like, we still have to, you know, squeeze 20% out of this building or something like that. So how do you think about that? Getting to that zero carbon number? Yeah, it's a great question. One of the nice things about being a product instead of a consultancy is you can be pretty opinionated. And in our opinion, is that, is that old narrative is tired as hell. Like there's, there's no carbon-free future that has a positive payback, at least from an operations perspective. Right now, in aggregate, electricity costs three times as much as natural gas. The, the, the moving to, to like getting to a carbon-free future involves getting off of gas and, and cleaning up the grid. It's pretty simple. And so the business case doesn't work if you're just looking at it from a pure energy savings perspective. Where we have to shift the narrative and where it is thankfully shifting is about is towards asset value. So increasingly regulations around the world, you know, the Netherlands as a as a sort of cute example, you cannot rent an office building to anyone if it doesn't hit energy label C by the end of 2023. That drives the value of that particular building asset to zero. Like if it doesn't for if it doesn't serve its primary function on the market, nobody wants to buy it. And that's the type of change that we're starting to see. People realizing that there's a huge amount of investment risk in in action. And so, as soon as we shift to that narrative, and you know, you have people like the CEO of BlackRock saying climate risk is investment risk and actively turning down investment opportunities if they don't have a cogent ESG strategy, then who cares about payback, right? It, it just, <laughs> it moves, it moves the conversation so firmly away that we don't even have to be caught up in that anymore. It's, it's, um, you know, a unique opportunity that we have in the market. And I think we have to leverage it really strongly. And how do you see this playing out? So 
listeners will have probably listened to the episode a couple weeks ago with the neighbors program in Australia. So it's really act like this concept is really active in certain pockets of the world. You mentioned the Netherlands in the U S we have different cities that have passed local ordinances. Right. But when I think about like all of the buildings in the world, decarbonizing all of the buildings, like how long is it going to take for that regulation to hit all of them? Right. So how do you think about that piece of, of scaling this up? Yeah. So right now what we have to find is the folks who have portfolios that are, are distributed enough that they're in one of those pockets, right? And those pockets ha- uh, thankfully happen to be in the largest population densities around financial markets. You know, you've got New York, Toronto, Vancouver, California. And so when you approach a, a group who has those, like a portfolio that's distributed in those geographies, then they're actually, they actually care about it. And where they where they distributed enough that they don't even know what all the regulations are, um, that's where they really need to, to start to you know pull the data together, and so that's really the the focus of our work right now is working with those large corporate class A the like triple A buildings smart buildings in order to serve that specific need, but what we're doing um, is learning so much about the features that make up buildings in general, that the, the, the models get smarter and smarter and smarter to the point that we can actually turn them out. Like we, we envision a future in which access to what you should do is just a public utility, right? You don't have to hire anybody, it's just available. And then you can see exactly what technologies you need to deploy to, to get you there. So I, I see the, the first step is really to work with those groups who have the current financial motivation to make to make moves and then take what we've learned and turn it out to the to you know sit geographies at large and thankfully we're seeing that kind of groundswell of movement at the regulatory level as well totally do you think eventually the regulatory impetus for action will translate down into smaller buildings and different different industries like different types of buildings at some point Absolutely. I, I mean, it has to, right? I think you shared a, a chart. What is it? Ni- 93% of commercial buildings or something are below a certain square footage. 13% of, of commercial buildings are, are smart buildings. So we have to deal with small, dumb buildings. And so you, you, where you have ge- entire geographies, like you know, here locally, the city of Vancouver, obviously New York taking a lot of action, but entire countries in Europe saying we're going to decarbonize our economy, it absolutely has to target those, those groups. And the only way to do that is by providing easy, strong visibility into what the opportunities are. Yeah, the, the thing you're referencing, the post I made is on our new white paper, which we'll put a link to, is basically saying like one of the barriers to decarbon- decarbonizing the world is like this layer that you guys are attacking, right? Which is like someone needs to go and figure out what to do in in the, in the U.S., it's 5.9 million buildings that are below 50,000 square feet. So, yeah, it's it's really exciting to enable, like, think about that being just, that piece is just taken away. That, that piece is done, right? That sounds really cool. Can we talk about the ESCO? So 
ESCO part of this. So I have a background as an ESCO four or five years at the beginning of my career. People don't know what that acronym is, energy service contractor. They're doing performance contracts to reduce consumption. I think there are some schools of thought that think that we just need to kind of revamp the ESCO model to where it can be applied to any building. You know, historically, ESCOs were just, you know, approaching public buildings, usually bigger buildings as well, municipalities, universities, that kind of thing. And so I think I have the perspective that the ESCO piece, and it has a, it's evolved into the energy as a service or efficiency as a service, that piece doesn't still doesn't quite solve it. Even if we were to apply the ESCO model to every building in the world, it still doesn't get us to where we need to go. What, what, are, what are your thoughts as someone who has experience in that world as well? Yeah, I think that the, the evolutions in the ESCO market are really exciting. I think the energy as a service for moving down market is 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 a really positive thing. As you say, we've seen it kind of stranded in the upper levels of the market because insurance costs so much because you have to, you know the paybacks have to be so short. There, are, it just limited what you could do as a, as a contractor and actually see positive returns. I think the challenge with energy performance is that you have, it has to be performant, right? And there's a lot of buildings in which the investment is not worth it in terms of pure savings. Yeah. So it just becomes a pure lending activity in which case, um, you know, what's the, what's the motivation for a contractor to, to put in all that time and effort if they can't, see see performance so i think for a certain segment of the market it makes a ton of sense and we really have to enable that yeah but more generally i think we just have to open up open it up as a marketplace like escos are one way you can do it the other way is you can borrow money from you know from a bank that has a low carbon lending program a, a green revolving fund you can install it yourself if you want to like there's no reason why we can't go all sorts of ways. So I think while it makes up one segment of it, we really do have to have a more robust toolkit from a implementation perspective. Yeah, the way I've been thinking about it is like, even if an ESCO were to serve every building in the world, they would still need like what you guys are developing, right? To be able to do that at scale. So interesting. Yeah. And, and the other thing that we're seeing is, you know, that while there are a bunch of really great emergent, new ESCO models, there are still a bunch of legacy suppliers and, and, and providers that, that control a huge segment of the market. And they are, they require a software tool for, you know, deal flow for project origination. And that's really a, a niche that we're, we're filling. Cool. All right. Last, last question. I think if, if I'm missing anything, let me know, but I think my last question is around split incentives. So how do you sort of approach the payback question when you know different buildings can be different set up differently from a financial standpoint who pays the bills who needs to invest in the projects themselves like how do you sort of sort out that and i'm assuming you guys have clients that are tenants and clients that are landlords so how do you sort of navigate that process yeah, so we tend to be on the landlord side most often on the working with asset managers and their representatives in, in property management. And so it's, a, it's sort of back to that, uh, that earlier point about payback is, you know, the split incentive thing is even just another thorn in the side of, of payback driven approaches is like, oh, well, you know, I don't pay for any of this, right? Where 
And yet they have to do something about it. And yet they have to do something about it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So if we're not worried about operational costs, um, in fact, operational costs from an, like the, of energy is relatively low in, in, in the grand scheme of all the, the net operating costs. If we can forget about that and just talk about how it affects asset value, then again, split incentive doesn't, doesn't really come into play. One interesting thing we've seen with, with heat pumps particularly is actually going going the other direction where a, a, a landlord has a centralized boiler system that can turn into unit-specific PTAC units, then they actually get to offload more of the operating costs onto the tenants while achieving those outcomes as well. So there's sometimes it works in our favor. <laughs> yeah. Well, cool. So what's the, what's the sort of future of Audet? You guys, you know, the company started a couple of years ago, you guys just started raising money. What, what, what's 2022 and beyond look like for you? Yeah. So 2022 is, a, is an exciting year for us where it's really the year where our machine learning models start to bear significant fruit. We're actively mapping out a bunch of North American geographies through satellite imagery, through image recognition um, on the machine learning side, and then using that to deploy into corporate real estate at an at ever-increasing rate. We've got a bunch of really exciting partnerships and contracts on the go, which I probably can't speak about right now, and we'll be doing a fundraise starting in, in April of this year. Yeah, no, it's uh, you know generally a really exciting time for the world. Yeah, I think 2020 was really a kick in the butt for a lot of a lot of folks, realizing how close 2030 was, and so we're in a lot of really exciting conversations and and working, you know, proud to be part of a community that is is really working hard to solve this problem. Awesome. Well, let's let's end up with a little tr- two truths and a lie. Can you stump me? Yeah, let's, let's give it a shot. Okay, so um, I once lived on a beach in Mexico with circus performers. Prior to the pandemic, I, I promoted large electronic music dance parties. And I once fell through a lake in the Canadian winter and died for a minute. <laughs> oh, wow. That is a tough one. Died for a minute. I'm going to go with B. The dance parties is, is a lie. Is a lie. A lie. Sorry, man. It's the it's the ice thing. Okay, damn. You just made that up, or is that like a friend that happened to, or what? Yeah, I just made that up. I just figured it was it was they were pretty Canadian. Relevant to, to your, to your background. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. So tell me about the Mexico, the beaches and circuit performers, circus performers. Yeah. No, I um. Uh, Volkswagen Westphalia and drove down the the west coast of, of Mexico and ended up in Puerto Vallarta and randomly met up with a troop of, of circus performers at, at, a, at a pizza place on a beach where I had plugged my van in and uh, we just hung out for about two months juggling and spinning fire. So. That's amazing. Well, thanks, Christopher, for coming on the show. I wish you guys the best of luck in, in 2022 as you ramp up. Yeah, great. Great to chat. And uh, thanks for the time. All right, friends. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Nexus Podcast. For more episodes like this and to get the weekly Nexus newsletter, which, by the way, readers have said is the best way to stay up to date on the future of the smart building industry, please subscribe at nexuslabs.online. You can find the show notes for this conversation there as well. Have a great day. Thank you.